Thank you. Morning, everyone. You all all right? Good. Thank you for having me with you this morning. It's absolutely beautiful to be here. And everyone at St. Peter's sends lots and lots of love to you. And we talk about you a lot. We pray for you a lot. And um, thank you for all the amazing ways that you also encourage us by the things that God's doing here. And we hear some of the stories of what God's doing in your church on staff, because um, some people come on Tuesdays, well, Ben and, and others on the staff team come, and they share stories of what God's doing at work here. And it's always encouraging to us. And so we're very blessed to be a part of what God's doing here. And we thank you that we can get involved too. Um, I'm here for week two, talking about money and giving. Um, which isn't the funnest subject, I'll be honest. But my aim today is to, hope, is to look at some scripture and to help us to understand that this is actually a really fun subject, despite what the world tells us, despite what our hearts are currently telling us right now, that we don't want to talk about money again and nothing about it is fun, that the biblical perspective, the upside-down kingdom perspective of money and our relationship to it and what we do it, with it is actually really good fun. And it's a brilliant, beautiful way of bringing the kingdom of God on earth, because that is our job as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is that we overflow with the kingdom of God and that we see the kingdom of God come. And the problem with the kingdom of God is it's very different from the kingdom in the world. In fact, it's completely upside down. We're currently going through a series at St. Peter's on the Sermon on the Mount. And everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is the opposite to what you might hear out in the world. So last week I had to talk about adultery and sex outside marriage. Imagine having to do that in today's society. It's so opposite to what people think of in the world and what they perceive sex to be about and the pl- its proper place and what freedom is in terms of that. It's Jesus just turns it completely on its head. And when when we speak so counterculturally, when when you start to realize how different the kingdom is from the world, you start to realize actually those people who start to live out God's kingdom on earth. It's totally different from the kingdom of darkness. It brings light and it helps to open people's eyes to some of the disruption and the lies that are out there in the world that are essentially like restricting our freedom and are meaning that we're not living as the people that we're created to be, no matter how nice it might hear or sound to be able to live our lives in the way that the world suggests. And money is one of these subjects. In fact, there's so many, like loving your enemies, for example. doesn't make any sense. only makes sense in the context of the kingdom of God and what Jesus has done for us. Money is exactly the same. Sex is exactly the same. Jesus just rattles them off in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really good fun to go through it. But I know Ben spoke last week um, a bit about that from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount on giving and our relationship to money. I'm going to touch slightly on that this morning. Um, And really what he's talking about is the the motivation behind our giving. So the motivation behind us giving financially um, to the poor, to the needy, for the things of the kingdom. Today I want to speak a little bit more about how we feel as we do it. So if that was the motivation, this, that's the why last week. This week, I want to say, well, here's how as Christians it's going to feel if we start getting in the flow of giving in the way that Jesus suggests and the biblical narrative suggests that we give. First, uh, always worth saying, if you're a guest or a visitor, I don't really know if anyone is a guest or a visitor, that some of the stuff I'm going to say at the end applies here uh, to HT, but there, there will be general principles that you can take to your churches at home, wherever you've come from, and general principles in life, really. Um, So it's helpful for all of us. And our reading is from 2 Corinthians, and it's going to come up on the screen. But if you want to follow in your Bible, it's 2 Corinthians from verse 6. 
And this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. And he's encouraging generosity among them. And it's beautiful the way that he speaks about it. And really what we hear in Paul talking to the church in Corinth about generosity, you hear the heart behind the way in which he wants the people in the church to give. The, the kind of, not necessarily the why and the motivation, but the way in which they're supposed to give. So it says this from verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should, not, should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So there's a lot in there. I'm going to break it down into three sections. But really, the bit I want to focus on this morning is in verse 7, where it says this. And this is the heart behind, really, how we give as Christians. It says, each of you should give as you've decided to give in your heart. Now, this is the key bit. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. How many of us here, when we're giving money or stuff away, it feels reluctant or under compulsion? Paul says, let's not do it like that. Instead, he said, God loves a cheerful giver. So what I'd love to do is try and help us. How do we go from reluctance and compulsion to cheerfulness? And that word for cheerfulness in the Greek actually means hilarious. So what Paul's saying is, be hilarious givers. I don't know when the last time you found something hilarious, whether you watched something or you saw something or you heard a joke that really tickled you and it made, it just, you found it hilarious. You know when you're hilarious and you can't control the laughter and it just kind of goes on, you get the giggles and you're off? It happened yesterday and I was taking a wedding and um, the couple had ordered rings from Amazon um, for each other and they didn't arrive because the guy, put, the bloke put the wrong address on, on the Amazon order and so it didn't arrive. So then he ordered another couple and those rings didn't arrive. In the end they went to Claire's Accessories um, to buy their rings for their wedding. So we got to the bit where they exchanged the rings and I was obviously leading them in Lycian and I said, Andrew, repeat after me, I'll give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. Everything I have I give to you and he just got the giggles. He couldn't stop it so he starts laughing and because of the context of buying it from Claire's probably for 99p, the idea of everything I give I give to you was too much for him. But it was hilarious for him. When is the last time you found something hilarious? couldn't stop laughing well Paul says that's the heart attitude with which we're to give it's just funny 
It's, just, it's almost like God's joke on the world of finance and money in general. It's hilarious. As Christians, when we give money away, it's supposed to be absolutely hilarious. It's supposed to be one of the funniest things we do. Now, the problem is, I, I'm going to speak for myself. I don't want to speak for you. It doesn't always feel hilarious, does it? In fact, so often I'm in the camp of compulsion or reluctance and not necessarily hilarious giving. And so in this passage, Paul gives us some tips and clues of how we go from compulsion and reluctance over to hilarious, so that when we give money, it becomes very funny. And it's funny for the people we're giving it to, it's funny for us, and it actually dethrones, I would argue, the God, the potential God of money, or the power that money can have over our lives. So how do we become that? Well, before we become hilarious givers, let's just have a little bit of a dig into the motivations behind money and the things tied up in money. Ben spoke a bit about this last week, so I won't go into it too much. But why is giving not fun? Why is giving our money away not that fun? Why is it not hilarious? Why does it feel reluctance or compulsion? Well, the simple answer to that, and it it comes out in lots of different ways, but the simple answer is we give money too much power in our lives. We give money too much power. Paul says in another letter in 1 Titus, he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And when you think about that, it's remarkable what he's saying there. And it's not money that's the root of all evil. We've heard this before. It's actually the, the love of money that's the root of it. So all of the evil that we see in the world has as its root the love of money. So when you think about evil over here, and then you think about the kingdom lifestyle, which is hilarious giving... Like we can't stop laughing as we're giving money away. Look at the difference. You've got evil over there, and then you've got us all having a joke with our money. Like it's funny. It's just remarkably funny. What is it about the love of money that results in evil? Well, Jesus talks about that, and Ben talked about it last week um, in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about storing up our treasures in heaven, and he says this. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Key line in the Sermon on the Mount. So where your treasure, where your money, and he uses the word, the, the, the word mammon there, which is like a Greek god of the time. So where, where your treasures, your money are, there your heart is also. And when you dig down into the verse and you start to trace it throughout other things Jesus said, other things that Paul says, the teachings in the Old Testament as well, it's a fascinating concept because we would think that where our heart is, there our giving or our money follows. So if our heart is really into something, if we really love someone or a cause or something, then naturally our money will follow along and go. Jesus says that's actually not the case. It's not the case at all because money is crafty. In fact, money, according to Jesus, has the potential to function like a God in our life. And when something functions like a God in our life, it has this weird hold over us. It has a power over us that stops us from giving it away freely. And so Jesus says, rather than deciding to give where your heart is, because the heart is actually deceitful, we give our hearts to Jesus, and as the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with his presence, we start to realize the difference between good and bad. In fact, there's a beautiful verse in Romans where it says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And as we come into the presence of God, as we fill with the presence, we start to see what God's perfect and pleasing will is. But it's hard for us to do that without his presence inside of us. Because in our natural, in our flesh, in our humanness, so often our heart is put in the wrong place. And so the giving, our money, follows the wrong things. So Jesus says, instead, here's what you want to do. Put your money in a place and watch how your heart follows along. Can you see the distinction there? It's beautiful and it's very powerful when you start to live it out. 
So where is it that Jesus asks us to put our money? Because we want our hearts to be in the right things. We don't want our hearts to be in the wrong things. And if our hearts follow our treasure, then where do we put our treasure? He says, sort sort where you invest your treasure and then watch your heart follow along. Well, Jesus says this, you want to store your treasure up in the kingdom of God. He talks about heaven. So what's the kingdom of God? Kingdom of God, according to Paul, is righteousness, peace, and joy. So what's righteousness? Righteousness is our right relationship with God in heaven. So because of what Jesus has done, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, on the cross, we are now right with God. He has got rid of, he's dealt with everything that separates us from God, but also everything that separates us from each other. So when our money is invested in the right place, our relationship with God is unobstructed. We don't have this problem of this God of money in the middle clouding things and making things hard and difficult to connect with God. Instead, it's done away with and the way is clear for us to be right with God. But also, and this is where Paul, uh, the Acts quote comes in about money, love of money being the root of all evil. It also enables our relationships to, with each other to be righteous. And that's a key part of the teaching of Jesus because watch how the love of money causes evil in the world. It's because money gets in between relationships. Look at the power that consumer relationships have in the world. Look at the destruction that results because of the love of money. Jesus says, if you get this right in our lives, then you're not just going to have righteousness with God. Your relationships with each other are going to stop being consumer relationships, and instead they're going to start to be covenant relationships, which is what Jesus absolutely loves and wants us to live our lives as a part of covenant relationships are about loving, choosing to love each other, lay down our lives for each other for the sake of the relationship, not about getting our needs met. And money has this weird power to start to twist our hearts and our minds into this consumer mindset where really it's about us getting our needs met. You see it happen all the time because as soon as the price isn't right or as soon as the service that's being provided isn't good enough, we break the relationship off and we go somewhere else. Jesus says, I don't want you to have relationships like that. I want you to have the kind of relationships that I have with you, which is I'm willing to lay down my life so that I can be restored and in relationship with you and show you my love. So our heart follows where we put our money. And by the way, so there's kingdom of light. This is very clear in the New Testament. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. When Jesus comes, he inaugurates the kingdom of light. So it's heaven kingdom of God. And there is a power encounter constantly in the Gospels. So when you, you see Jesus, this kind of teaching, but also the way he, he uh, teaches his disciples to live out his teaching and the way that he lives out his teaching, every time the kingdom of God comes, there's this power encounter between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so it's heaven and hell. And you see this clash where it erupts as a result because the kingdom of darkness is the opposite to the kingdom of God. So if that's the case, then the kingdom of darkness is about unrighteousness, not being right with God, not being right with each other. It's about anxiety instead of peace. So we constantly feel this anxiety, but it's also about sadness and depression and not joy. So can you see, how if we get our relationships wrong, wrong with money, here's what Jesus is saying will happen. We will start, our relationship with God will be broken. As a result of that, our relationships with each other will start to get broken. As a result of that, we'll start to, we'll feel extreme anxiety in our hearts and our souls. We'll be anxious. We won't have peace in our life. And as a result of that, we'll start to feel deep, deep sadness. And when you look at the world and the world's relationship to money, Can you see those three things play out? It's unbelievably sad 
And Jesus says, I don't want my children to live that way. I want them to live in the kingdom of light. How do we live in the kingdom of light? We put our money in the right places so that we have our heart set on the things of heaven. So therefore, he says, invest your money in the things of heaven. And we're going to come to that in a second. But just quickly, just to conclude this about this is the beginnings of trying to make giving fun. Um, when we have, when, when we entertain this idea of God being or loving money, so money being a little bit like God, what we're doing is we're giving money far too much significance and far too much influence on our security. So when money functions like a God in our life, we're only, we only feel significant when we have enough of it. And let's face it, we never have enough of it. So therefore, we live a life of insignificance. And that feels miserable. In fact, Jesus says it feels a bit like hell. It's just that you just don't have the connection with God. But also there's this security. We, if, we put, if we have money as a God, then we give it the power to, to, to tell us when we feel secure or not. And so therefore, when we have loads of it, we feel okay. But we never have enough of it. But when we lose it or we don't have enough of it, we feel insecure. It feels like the ground beneath our feet or the rug's been pulled out from under our feet and we're totally insecure. Jesus doesn't want us to live lives like that. Instead, he wants us to get our significance from him and him alone. This is why when Jesus started his ministry, God said to him, before he did anything, 30 years of his life, hadn't started his ministry yet, he gets baptized, and God says to him, this is my son with whom I am pleased. I'm proud of him, before he's done anything. Because Jesus' significance wasn't rooted in anything that he was doing or getting. It was simply in his relationship with God as his father. But also, is he wants us to have our security in him. This is why Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you put this teaching into practice, you're going to be like the guy that builds his house on a rock, not the guy that builds his house on, a stand, on, a, on sand. So if we give money the power to have significance over us, the power to determine how secure we feel, when the rains fall and the money goes, it's going to be like sand underneath the foundations of our life. It's going to just waste away and we're going to fall into the sea. But if we put the practices of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus into place, then we're going to have a rock underneath our feet. So when the rain pours and the storms come, our house is going to be stable and strong because our significance and our security is in him and him alone. And guess what? He's going nowhere, right into eternity. So here's the question then. How do we break the power of money if you have a problem with the power of money? And I would suggest a lot of us do, and often we don't know it. I do, and I did, and still do, and it's a constant. It's a constant journey of laying it down before God as an act of sacrifice in worship. So, how do we break the power of money? Well, the answer here, given by Paul, is we become hilarious givers. We become hilarious with giving money away. It's almost, from a worldly perspective, completely stupid. Makes no sense whatsoever. It's like when someone gets the giggles and nobody else knows why they can't stop laughing because they don't get the joke as Christians. We know the joke. The joke is that money can't provide you significance and security. And so therefore, we give it away freely and we laugh as we do it. And the world's looking on and being like, why are those guys full of joy? We're full of joy because we've undermined, we've destroyed the God of money. And people in the world haven't been able to do that yet. So how do we do it? Well, seeing as we're talking about money, I'm going to give you an equation. So it's got three parts. There we go. That bit plus that bit equals that bit. I didn't do very well at maths at school at all. You can go back to the original bit now. Go back up, Nick. Thanks. Okay, first part of the equation. So how do we make giving fun? How do we get, make our relationship with money fun so that it doesn't have power for our significance or our security? Firstly, we need to get to know the giver. Verse 14 and 15 says this. 
So right at the end of this passage that we've read, Paul says, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. So he's talking about in relation to you, the, the church in Corinth giving money. And then he says, uh, because of the surpassing grace God has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So when we give cheerfully, when we give away hilariously, it's a sign of understanding the grace of God. Because everything that we've received as Christians, everything that's a part of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ is a gift. That's what that word grace means. It's a gift from heaven. We haven't earned any of it. So everything that we have isn't our own. We don't own it. God owns it. It's all of a gift. And so therefore, we can be free with what we do. It. So if we want to become hilarious givers, if we want to have a freedom in the area of our finances, the first thing we need to do, back to the, the equations, thank you, is get to know the giver. And as soon as we get to know the giver, the, our relationship with money, with money will be in its right place and we'll be able to do with it what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do it. So who is the giver? Well, the giver is Jesus. And how do we know what he's giving us? Well, it's God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that those who believe in him won't perish but have eternal life. The giver is a giver of agape love. So there's lots of different words for love in the New Testament, in ancient Greek, right? In fact, there's seven. And the problem with English is we only have one word for love. So I love my mum and I love pizza, but hopefully there's different gradations of love going on there. Otherwise, it would be strange. But we have the only one word, love. Well, in ancient Greek, they had loads of different types of love. But the highest form of love, the best form of love, is agape love. And it's divine love. And in John 3.16, the famous verse, where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. Well, the love there is agape love. And what, what makes that love from different from all the other types of love is self-sacrificial. So everything that we have in the kingdom of God, our connection with God as our Father, the fact that we are children of God is given to us as a gift of grace because of the sacrifice of Jesus. This is right at the heart of the gospel of everything that we believe. Paul talks about it in another letter. He says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus lived the perfect life. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, that is like a biography of Jesus. He's talking about his own life. In fact, at the end of it, he says, well, here's what you really need to do to sum everything up I've just said be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and everyone's like how are we supposed to do that that's impossible what Jesus is doing there is he's pointing towards the cross as the only person on earth who's able to live the perfect life the only person who is the truest the, the true representation of God himself and so therefore when he goes to the cross he goes as a man who's condemned for having done absolutely nothing wrong he knew no sin he never ever committed what sin sin is a life turned in on itself sin is everything that we do that puts disconnection distance between us and God acts as a barrier sin is everything that happens in our relationships that means we have disunity it's the evil in the world that the kingdom of light is coming to get rid of of the kingdom of darkness and so Jesus didn't participate in that at all in fact all he did was he brought light everywhere that he went however he was killed he was crucified on the cross and what Paul's saying there is he knew no sin so he never committed sin but on the cross what happens he became sin and so God 
put all of our sin, everything that we do that makes, creates distance between us and God, the evil in our hearts, and he puts it upon the person of Jesus and it crushes him. And he dies the most excruciating death known to humankind. And it kills him. He who knew no sin became sin. Now here's the gospel. And this is the gift that we receive as children of God. So that we might become the righteous ones. So that we can have our relationship restored with God. Because because of what Jesus has done on the cross, God looks upon every single one of us here who have given our lives to Jesus. He looks at us and he sees the spotless lamb. He sees his son in whom there is no sin whatsoever because Jesus has taken away the sin of the world. And so therefore we can relate to God as children of him. That We can be his sons and his daughters. That is a gift from start to finish. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to deserve it. In fact, we deserve the opposite but God says I love you so much that I'm willing to give my son so that I can have you in my family and show you my love so can you see how this starts to relate to money so when we give money it's not a sign of legalism it's not something we do because it's the right thing to do compulsion or reluctance it's not something we do as a sign of our own generosity it's not something we do as a sign of commitment to church It's a sign of God at work in our life and us understanding the gospel of grace, that everything that we have that's important, that gives us security, that gives us significance, comes from God as a gift because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So if we want to become hilarious in our givers, we have to get that first bit right. The only way that we love is because God first loved us. In fact, love, so in the ancient Greek, all those other forms of love, there's loads of them. I don't have time to go into it, but we're quite good at quite a few of them. I'm just suggesting that the, the, the highest form, the seventh one, agape, the really important type of love, we're not so good at. Like self-sacrificial, give your lives. Lay down your life for your friends. Lay down your life. This is where Jesus gets really serious. Lay down your life for your enemies. Who does, who does that? Only Jesus. And when we realize what it is that he has given to us, we're then able to love others. We can only forgive because we've first been forgiven very hard to forgive people who have wronged us, isn't it? We all know that because we've all been wronged and we've found the struggle. But because we have give, been forgiven so much, we're able to, through the power of the Spirit, give, forgive freely because we've received forgiveness ourselves. So we can only give money if we know how much we've been given, all the riches that we have because of Jesus on the cross. Okay, so first step of making giving money fun in our life, get to know the giver. Second one is get yourself in the flow. And this is verse uh, 10 to 11 of, of uh, chapter 9. It says this. Now he, well, actually, let's read verse 6 first because it's kind of related. Remember this. This is like a truism that Paul is saying here. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He says that elsewhere in other letters. It's an important thing in Christian faith. Now in verse 10, he says, now he who supplies seed to, that's God, supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of food and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. 
So what's he talking about here? This is a basic agricultural truism, and I don't know anything about farming. I was a potato farmer for two summers in a row before I went to university, and I loved it, but it was very confusing to me. I didn't understand it. But let, I think we can all get on board with this basic principle. The more you sow, the more you reap. The more you sow, the more you reap. Let's put it another way. You can't outgive God. The more you give, the more you receive. Now hear this correctly. This isn't a slot machine. So this is not the prosperity gospel. This isn't if I give this much, I'm going to get tenfold in exactly the same way back. However, this is an important principle biblically that as we give to God, he will look after us and go well beyond anything we ever dreamed of in our lives because he is our security he is our significance. It won't act like a slot machine because this is a relationship with our Father in heaven, but he owns everything. The seed that we put into the field, the plow that we use to harvest it, everything is owned by him. So therefore, as we give freely and generously, as we sow generously, we're going to reap a great harvest because God is the ultimate giver and you cannot outgive God. And you only really start to understand this principle uh, biblically if you start stepping out and doing it. And it's as you start to give sacrificially, you start to notice God giving back. Um, I, when I first heard teaching on this, uh, this passage, it was about, probably about 13, 14 years ago now, at the end um, of the talk, I'm not going to do this this morning, but the, the guy who's speaking got us to wait on the Spirit and... Um, got us to ask God, what's the, the thing we treasure most in our life? Not a person, because you can't give a person away. That's not right or legal. Uh, what's the thing that you treasure most in your life, okay? And so we're waiting on the Spirit. And um, I just bought an iPad for the first time. It was when iPads were fairly new, and I, abs- I, was, I was studying at college. absolutely loved it. In lectures, I would play things on it and games and not really listen to lectures. I loved it. I'd watch things on it all the time. It became like my favorite thing that I had. And so as he's saying, ask the Holy Spirit, what do you treasure most right now? Straight into my mind comes my new iPad because I just got it and I was loving it. So then, and this is tricky. I don't, think, I don't recommend this. It's not right. He then got us all to open eyes and goes, now that thing that, that God just brought to mind, this week I want you to give it away. <laughs> and so I was like, hmm. um, anyway. It was, bizarrely, it was, it, it was, he, was in the, he was following the spirit, I could tell, if, because it felt powerful in the moment. So I go home, and he actually got us waiting on the spirit and asking, he, he said, ask God who you're supposed to give it to. And a name came into my head, um, there's someone who could give it to. Anyway, I got home, got my iPad, wiped it, because <clears throat> I was in the flow from the service, I was feeling good, packaged it up. Monday morning, I was going to send it. Got down to my office Monday morning. I was like, I just can't do it. <laughs> Couldn't do it. So I just left it on my desk for a while and didn't do anything with it. A week later, it's still sitting there. A month later, it's still there. And bearing in mind, right, I'm not getting any use out of this iPad anymore because it's in a sealed box. And so it's on the desk. No one's getting any use of it. And I just can't give it away because I love it too much. And anyway, in the end, I actually brought... Like, actually managed to pluck up the courage and I post it to my friend. I kid you not, and this is, please hear this correctly because this is not a slot machine. This is not how this works, but it is an amazing example of how when you sow, God gives back. The week after, I had a random phone call from a friend who I hadn't spoke to for five years, and he said, I was praying, and I feel like God's just told me that I'm supposed to give you my MacBook Pro, <laughs> right? So then he just sends it, and he knew nothing about what I'd just done. How bizarre is that? And let's face it, MacBook Pro in those days, much better than an iPad. It's probably three times the amount, 
much better for work at college, meant I wasn't playing games and lectures. Anyway, the point is you cannot outgive God. As you start to sow and you put your treasure in the right places, which is the kingdom, you follow the Holy Spirit, what you'll find is that God will give you more pressed down in Luke 6, he says, to overflowing. The context there is forgiveness, but I think it applies to everything that we do in the kingdom of God. He will give you more pressed down to overflowing in your lap. This is a relationship with God as the ultimate giver. So this is not something we do so as to receive more. Because let's face it, as soon as you start receiving more, you want to start giving it away again. Because that's how it works. So we've got to get ourselves in the flow. And you know, off the back of having that experience, I find it really fun to give now. Because I've noticed the way that God provides, not always in the same way, not always instantly, often I have to wait, but I've noticed that the more I give, the more God looks after my every needs and blesses me in all these different ways. And so therefore, if we want to become hilarious givers, we need to get to know the giver, but we also have to start getting ourselves in the flow. And that really is an act of obedience. We don't like that word. Uh, nobody, the youth talking about submission, get that, that's unbelievable. On Father's Day, did Miles plan that? Father's Day talking about submission. But this is an act of obedience to Jesus. We're saying, God, I give you this treasure because I know my treasure really is in you and in you alone. And so therefore he gives back. And so next slide, please, Nick. If we get to know the giver and we get ourselves in the flow, we become giddy, hilarious in our giving. Money, instead of being a constant worry and anxiety, will instead start to become a source of fun in the kingdom of God. Money will lose its power over us because we notice more of God's power working in and through us and we get our significance and security from him and him alone. And when we start to exercise faith and we get in the flow of grace, then giving becomes so much more fun. Okay, so few questions here because this really is quite practical, this kind of teaching, because we can, we can give money and we just do it as an act of obedience. How and to whom do I give? Well, let's just reread verse 7 here. It says, each of you should give what you've decided to give in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So how do we give? We have to give as we have decided to give in our hearts. Now, it feels a bit like this contradicts what Jesus said about put your treasure and your heart follows. And I think it, it does, but... This, you've got to put it in the context of the rest of Paul's teaching. How do we know what the will of God is? We come into the presence of God and we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's Romans 12. Paul takes that very seriously. And so when he's talking about how we decide what to give in our hearts, it's because we submit ourselves or we've opened ourselves to the presence of God. And so therefore, our minds are being transformed by his presence, Jesus' presence in our lives. And then we know what God's good and perfect will is. Now, in the context of that in Romans 12, is that we are not to conform to the pattern of the world. Now, we live in the world, we swim in the world, we breathe in its air, and so therefore we're infected by it constantly. And so therefore, conforming to the pattern of the world is very easy for us. And so for us to be able to do what Paul's saying to do there, which is give as you decided to give in your heart, you have to get yourself into the presence of Jesus. And when you're in the presence of Jesus, our minds are transformed. We know his good and perfect will. We no longer conform to the pattern of the world. And instead, we start to give as the Holy Spirit is leading us. So I think the teaching from Paul and of Jesus and of the New Testament is that we give as the Holy Spirit tells us to give. Because Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. That applies to money as well. It applies to everything, the whole of life, but it definitely applies to money. So we give as the Spirit leads, just as we do with everything in the Christian life. We don't live in under any kind of law. Um, tithing. So here's the interesting thing about tithing. Old Testament law of tithing. 
Um, is it eradicated by the New Testament? Here's the problem, really, with the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're supposed to go well beyond the tithe. And so often in church, you'll hear this, this kind of the concept of give 10% of your money and everything's going to be all right, as though it's some sort of tick box and that's the, the way to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says, give it all. All of it. Now, I'm not there. I don't know where you are. I'm not, I'm not there yet. So I'm following the Spirit as to how to yield my heart to him the whole time. But the tithe thing, it, when it's misapplied, it often becomes a little bit like a religious tick, tick box exercise. However, what I do in my life, what Hanel and I, my wife, what we do is we give 10% to our church. And then the, bits, the, the, the stuff that we give on top, we do it in a hilarious way because Giving to church isn't that hilarious. Whereas what's really hilarious is where some, someone comes across you, your path in the week and there's a need there and you're like, yeah, I'll give to that and you give to it. Or the Holy Spirit says this person needs something and then you give it to them and that's hilarious, that's more fun. And so therefore the 10% for us becomes a disciplined thing and then the rest becomes a hilarious thing, which is really good fun. So there's, uh, in uh, the New Testament, there's an expectation that we do set aside a proportion of our income to support the work of our particular church. We're also encouraged in the Bible to give to the poor, which is the context of the passage here, by the way, especially the poor amongst us in the body of Christ. There's many ways that you can do that, um, but here you have a fellowship fund, and so therefore um, you could give to the fellowship fund. But I, the thing I really love is, you know where Jesus talks about don't, when it comes to giving away money, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? I think the most fun thing is, in the church context, is asking the Holy Spirit, who's in need in my church family, and how can I give to them? And then here's the key bit. When you give it to them, do it anonymously. So don't give it to them in person. Just find out a way of doing it anonymously. You can do that through the guys here at church. You can say, I'd love to give to this person, but I don't want to. So then they can do it through central funds or something like that. And it becomes really good fun. So uh, there's expectation we give to church, expectation we give to to the poor. But obviously the spirit will also direct us to relieve other situations and needs in the world. As well, um, so if you give to HT here, what will your money go towards? Well, everything goes towards the vision of the church. This is why the vision of the church is so important. And the vision of the church is the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says, put your money in things of heaven, invest in heaven, and then your heart's going to follow. It makes sense that if a church is about the kingdom of God, that we invest our money in the coming of the kingdom of God. Next slide, please, Nick. So I'm changing it here, thinking it's changing it there, but it's not. Extend the love of Jesus. Pursue God's kingdom in uh, Sydenham and Forest Hill and Southeast and belong. That's, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. It's the coming of the kingdom here at HT, not on Sunday services. Sunday services are lovely. It's out there in the world. It's seeing the kingdom come and the kingdom of light and overcoming the kingdom of darkness and light spilling out into everywhere that's happening. So this, Ben spoke about this last week, but I just want to just mention a few things when you give your money to this church and this applies to people who consider themselves a part of the church family here obviously it's going towards boring stuff like heating building all that kind of stuff but over and above that it's going to mission it's going to the kingdom of God coming in this area and there's many ways that that is happening and there's some beautiful new plans that Ben mentioned last week firstly Myra's here Myra runs something called unconditional 
at St. Peter's, and this is a beautiful ministry for women who have been in abusive relationships, domestic violence situations, who are then able to, by Myra and others in the team who have been trained extensively and have their own experience as well, be able to love them as God would love them and help them to heal and protect them as a church. And that is a beautiful example of the kingdom of God coming. And so you guys have got plans to set up Unconditional here at HT as well. And it is remarkably common. I mean, you don't need me to tell you this, but the fact there's one in Broccoli, we need one everywhere of Unconditional because it's remarkably common and a beautiful way that we see the kingdom come. You're planning to do a connection cafe, um, which might become a CAP support hub. So do you guys know Christians Against Poverty? It's exceptional. We um, run a, a debt uh, support, but also a job club at our um, at our church, and it is brilliant. So when you set up the Connection Cafe, there's going to be connections with CAP, which helps people out of poverty, and they've got so many different things that go on there. But we're going to need to pay for staff and training to support those things and to help people in the community. Um, Alpha, you're going to start doing in the new term, and we do uh, something called the Life Course, very similar. It's basically for people who wouldn't consider themselves to be Christians to present them in a really non-confrontational way, present them the gospel so that they can come to it on their own terms. And so they come along, and they have a lovely meal, and then they hear a talk um, about Jesus, and then they get to discuss it with other people who are also exploring bigger questions of life. What I have noticed, um, ideally, what will be happening is every single one of you in this room who knows Jesus will be telling everybody you know about Jesus and we'll see a constant flow of people becoming Christians. What I have noticed in the church is that that's not happening. It's not happening in any church. I'm not pointing you guys out. Not happening in our church. Not happening in many churches. And I think that's an issue of discipleship that we need to address and we need to keep coming back to. But what I have noticed is churches that don't do a course often don't see anybody come to faith. So when we do these courses, we do life course three times a year, Every course, and this sounds really crude to talk numbers like this, but I've just noticed it because I've been doing it for 10 years now, 10% of the people on the course come to faith, have their lives radically transformed by the love of Jesus and get baptized in the church and become Christians. So if you have a course of 30, you're going to have three new Christians in your church community, which is a beautiful thing. Now, we need to combine that with street evangelism. We need to combine that with relational evangelism. We need to combine that with you guys evangelizing those in your workplaces, on your streets. And some of you will be doing this beautifully. But I think as a baseline, it's important to have a touch point in church where people can experience Jesus and come to faith. And it's an easier invite. So for us here to invite someone to that is often easier than in our workplace saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus or getting into those conversations. So it's a brilliant thing to do. Um, Baby and me. Uh, we, we're, we use a lactation consultant at St. Peter's to help new mums with feeding. And since we started having her at this baby and me, we, we do something, what's it called, bumps and babies at St. Peter's. Um, it's tripled, quadrupled actually in size, the amount of mums that are struggling because the NHS is so overwhelmed, they can't actually help the mums feed like breastfeed. And so therefore we have this lactation consultant who's just helping the mums there every week and just helping them work out how to do that in the most vulnerable time of their life. And so you guys are planning to start doing that here um, at HT as well. And it's a beautiful way of helping people in the local community. And then relationally, just relationships start to spark up and people find out about Jesus as well as a result. And there's many other beautiful things that you're planning to do. I won't go all into all to it because you can listen to Ben's talk from last week. So here's the final bit and we're going to spend some time just waiting on the Holy Spirit. 
as we wait on the Spirit, don't worry if this isn't your church family. You can be thinking about your own church, where you're from, or just think about your relationship with money in general if you want. But there's three things um, that we're asking. Next slide, please, Nick. Um, firstly, if you're part of this church family and you're not already giving, can you ask the Holy Spirit, is it time for me to start giving? Remember, we do this in response to the Holy Spirit's doing. So this is not under compulsion. I'm not compelling anyone to do anything. This is also not about reluctance. This is about a work of the Spirit in our hearts helping us. So can, if you're not already giving, can you ask the Holy Spirit I'm supposed to give? Secondly, if you are already giving, uh, could you ask the Holy Spirit, am I to up that? Am I to up it to 10% or am I to up it anyway? And then thirdly, if you're already giving and it's 10%, is the Holy Spirit asking you to give a one-off gift? We do this three times a year at St. Peter's and we just ask people to ask the Holy Spirit and we rely on him to speak to us because we give as the Holy Spirit leads us. So this is not about reluctance or compulsion, but we're going to spend some time waiting on the Holy Spirit. And then when you do it, there's the QR code. You don't have to follow through. Under your chairs, could you all just get this up and just have a little wave? This is a pledge form, um, and after we've waited on the Holy Spirit and asked God what we're supposed to do, we're going to have a song, and during the song, if the Holy Spirit asks you to, to do something, could you just fill that out, and the basket will come around, you can stick it in the basket. Some of you responded last week, so don't worry. Some of you might need to take it home and pray about it more, or speak to your husband or wife or somebody else who's helping you. That's absolutely fine. Don't worry about that. This is just to help us, really, because what, what happens is people aren't going to then chase you down. So if you write something on here, you're not going to be hounded to, to follow through on it. You might get an email that just says, listen, you pledge this. Do you still want to do it? Here's how you do it. Don't worry if you don't. That's what we always do. Um, so that's just to help us, really, just in the moment to say, okay, I've heard what the Holy Spirit's telling me to do. I'm just going to write it down. I'm just going to give it. It's a bit like me packaging up the iPad and it's sitting on my desk. It means that at some point I follow through on it. Okay, let's stand and we'll wait on the Spirit. So let's shut our eyes so we're not distracted. And um, Holy Spirit, we want to be hilarious givers. We want to find giving really.